A limited view on the present keeps people from putting faith in God. If we aren't intentional about being aware of what God has and will do, we can make our present situation bigger than what it is. Hi, I'm Fanny Osabin, a preacher for the Church of Christ. In today's sermon, A Present God Who Controls the Future, taken from 2 Kings 6, we will look at how God controls the future no matter how we feel about it. We serve God who is eternal, which is why it's important to study the past and how he worked with his people through history so we can trust him presently and put faith in what he told us to receive the promises to come through Jesus. Hopefully, today's sermon helps us strengthen our faith and put trust in God so that whatever we're going through, we'll know that he's in control of all of our tomorrows. Focusing on the present can be a trap. You see, when we put too much attention on the here and the now, it causes us to be blind to the past and also the future. But that's where we find ourselves in this predicament in the world. Everybody is captured by what's going on right now in this present moment. And we're all caught up in survival mode. How can I make it through to the next moment, the next day, the next meal? And we're not considering how we got to where we're at. We're not considering where we are actually trying to go. You see, we forgot all the stuff that God has brought us to, and we forgot all the places that God is trying to bring us to because we're overlooking it in lieu of right now. You see, the present in people's minds has overpowered the God of eternity. Last week, we looked at Elisha with his, dare I say, challenge to the false prophets on Mount Carmel and how that the real problem going on in Israel was not the problem that there was a drought, but the problem that there was a drought on faith to God. And this week, we're going to look at almost the same historical period. We're going to look a little bit past the life of Elijah and the life of Ahab, the two uh, people in our story last week, and we're going to be dealing with their successors, Elisha and Joram, the son of the king and the successor of the prophet. And although the times have changed a little bit, the solution is still the same, God. And there's an ever-present problem that has been carried on from the days of Elijah to the days of Elisha that we see its resolution in the passage that we're going to look at. We'll be in 2 Kings chapter 6. But this present problem in Israel that is overtaking people's focus on God is 
Ben-Hadad has come and he's besieged the city. Now to widen out the context of the scripture, one would really need to look at this whole narrative from 1 Kings 19, dare I say, but 20, all the way to 2 Kings 9 or 2 Kings 7, depending on where you, where you want to end. If you want to see God's prophetic words, you start with 1 Kings 19 and how he's going to change the leadership in regards to the king of Israel, the king of Armenian, the king of Amram, and the and, uh, prophet. And that all gets resolved in the context of 1 Kings 20 through 2 Kings chapter 9. But this king Aram, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has come before God's people. Starting in the 20th chapter of 1 Kings, he's a thorn in their side. And now we are in 2 Kings 6, and I'm going to start reading at verse 24. And if we're familiar with scripture, we know that when we go through chapters, especially in the Old Testament, we have gone through a number of years. So this king has been a problem for Israel for some years. We're going to pick up in 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 24. 2 Kings 6, 24, and it reads, Sometime later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army. He marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. As the siege continued, famine in Samaria became so great that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was walking on the city wall, a woman cried out to him, Help, my lord king. He said, No, let the Lord help you. How can I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? But then the king asked her, What is your complaint? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son, we will eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son, and we will eat him, but she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now since he was walking on the city wall, the people could see that he had sackcloth on his body underneath. And he said, So may God do to me and more if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, stays on his shoulders today. So he dispatched the man from his presence. Now Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Before the messengers arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Are you aware that this murderer has sent someone to take off my head? When the messenger comes, See that you shut the door and hold it closed against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? While he was still speaking with them, the king came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I hope in the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of choice meal 
shall be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain of whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, Even if the Lord were to make windows in the sky, could such a thing happen? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat from it. Now there were four leprous men outside the city gate who said to one another, why should we sit here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. But if we sit here, we shall also die. Therefore, let us desert to the Aramean camp. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they rose at twilight to go up to the Aramean camp. But when they came to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there at all. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, The king of Israel has hired the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to fight against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp just as it was and fled for their lives. When these leprous men had come to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent, ate and drank, and carried off silver, gold, and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back, entered another tent, carried off things from it, and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, what we're doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We went to the Aramean camp, but there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied, the donkeys tied, and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and proclaimed it to the king's household. The king got up in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Arameans have prepared against us. They know that we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses since those left here will suffer the fate of the whole multitude of Israel that we have perished already, let us sit and find out. So they took two mounted men, and the king sent them after the Aramean army, saying, Go and find out. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. The whole way was littered with garments and equipment that the Arameans had left or thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a measure of choice meal was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. The people trampled him to death in the gate just as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two measures of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and the measure of choice meal, 
for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain had answered the men of God, even if the Lord were to make windows in the sky, could such a thing happen? And he had answered, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat from it. It did indeed happen to him. The people trampled him to death in the gate. One thing that we see prevalent in this passage is that God reigns in the affairs of man. And when God says something, he brings it to fruition. And when God acts, no matter if we believe it or not, it's going to happen. You see, in this text, what I want us to really hunker down on is how bad this situation was and how good it turned. You see, when you consider how bad it was and what the woman says to the king, it shows to the extreme of the foolishness that has persisted in Israel. It's 180 degrees from the wisdom that was evident in the days of Solomon. You see, in Solomon's days, they were at their highest prosperity. Wisdom abound. There was peace on all sides. The temple had been dedicated to the Lord, and people had a heart for God. And now we have come to a time in Israel to where foolishness persists. People have forsaken God, and the opposite of what we see happening in Solomon's days, to where he can discern between two prostitutes whose baby it is by offering a wise decision, we see two women who have made a pact to eat their babies because of their dire predicament. There's a famine in the land. There's an enemy that's going to besiege them. And they have lost hope in God. And so people have price gouged. People have given up hope. And people have done despicable things and have been dishonest in their dealings with their fellow neighbors so much to the point that a woman has eaten her own child. It's bad. Very bad. And one would think, how can it get so bad for God's people? But as we were considering last week's sermon, it's because people have gotten away from God. But understanding that, that the getting away from God has caused this bad predicament, what we want to consider today is God is still in control. And that no matter how bad it gets, there's a better tomorrow. But people don't always realize that. Because what they do is they focus so much so in the moment that they don't learn how to be content and appreciate 
what God has brought them through and how God can change the situation. And we'll consider just two people really for this sermon. If you look at the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, and if you look at Joram, they did not consider all the things that God had done for their benefit. And what they actually do is find themselves both at different points in this whole big narrative from 1 Kings 20 all the way to 2 Kings 9 trying to kill the man of God. Consider Ben-Hadad first. If you go back all the way to when Ahab had wars with Ben-Hadad, what we see is that when they first were going to fight, that Ben-Hadad was given into the hands of Ahab. And what Ahab does is he grants him mercy and spares his life and allows him to live. And they go into a treaty with each other to which Ben-Hadad doesn't honor doesn't respect. What Ben Hadad didn't realize was that God had purpose for him to be killed by Ahab. But Ahab didn't do it and he spared his life from his enemy. And so God says, Ahab, it'll be your life for his. But as we continue reading in the story, we also see that what God has done for these Arameans is good. So not only is Ben-Hadad's life spared with Ahab, we have Naaman, the captain of his host, comes down and he's healed of his leprosy. God's giving him mercy. It's also said that God has granted Ben-Hadad victories through Naaman. God is doing good for him. Ben-Hadad sends his soldiers down to besiege Israel and God blinds them in the sixth uh, chapter. And what happens? God tells Elisha to tell Joram, don't treat these prisoners of war wrong. Feed them. He makes a feast for his enemies and sends them back. And all of this happens for the benefit of the king of Aram. In some Bibles it says Syria. And yet he still finds himself going to fight against God's people. It's so bad that at one point when he goes and sends uh a troop out to find Elisha because Elisha knows the very thoughts that are going on in his bedroom that somebody tells him the very words that you say God is revealing to his prophet and when he sends an army to go try to kill Elisha Elisha opens his servant's eyes and he sees that there's more with God's people that we can't see than there is with the enemy that we do see. And this gives Elisha strength 
to be the person that God wants him to be, to confront those that God puts in front of him. The enemies of God, Elisha has no problem confronting because he knows that God is in control of the situation. Yet, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, not realizing the grace and mercy he's received from God, constantly goes up against Israel to take control of it. Because he's not mindful of what God has done for him. And then you think about Joram, the king of Israel. He is not mindful of what God has provided him as well. Through this narrative, Joram is given the kingdom after his brother Ahaziah dies because he did not consult God about his injury and he tried to consult another God. And God says, because you tried to consult Beelzebub of Ekron, you will not come up from the bed that you have fallen into. And Joram, his brother, takes the throne from him. This is the son of Ahab, the worst king in Israel. But what does God do for him? Joram gets with the king of Judah, and they get with the king of Edom, because they're going to go fight the Moabites. And God, victor uh, God miraculously gives the Moabites into their hands. They're on their way there. They run out of water. They run out of supplies to feed themselves, to drink, to feed themselves and their animals. And they think they're going to die. So they go and they call Elisha. And what Elisha says is, if it wasn't for the king of Jerusalem, I would not respect you guys. And so, he tells them that God's going to provide for you. Tomorrow, there'll be water. They get the water, and when the Moabites come, they see the water, and they think that it's blood, and they are fearful, because they think that the enemies have fought against each other. And God hands the Moabites over into their hands. The king of Israel is benefited by God. And then we get to this context and he says two things that stand out. The first one is he tells the lady, how can I help you if God doesn't help you? Which is very true. He recognized that he can't do anything that God cannot do. There's a famine in the land because the enemies have besieged them. He cannot help them pass what God can help them with. The second thing that he says where a lot of people stand as well but is wrong is he sees God as the one who has troubled Israel. God's not the troubler of Israel. Neither is the representative of God. What Joram doesn't understand and what I think he put too much confidence in is his religious obligations. 
you see, we're told earlier in Kings that when Joram became the king, he stopped some of the false practices that his father and mother had done, but he still followed in the idolatrous ways of Jeroboam, who caused all Israel to sin. And in stopping in the Baal worship that his father and mother followed, I believe he thought he did enough to please God. And that's where a lot of people sit. They think the little that they do according to their understanding for God is enough to get God in their good graces. But it's not. We have to go all the way and forsake all of those things that are contrary to God for us to be where God would have us to be. And when people don't do that, they are upset in the fact that God's not blessing them to the degree that they want. So they get like Joram, who is just like Ben-Hadad, who does not realize that God has really done something to bless them, and they still try to take control of situations and supersede their limits. Ben-Hadad tries to take Israel. At one point, he tries to kill Elisha, the man of God, because God is revealing to him where he's at and thwarting his plans. Joram goes out and tries to kill Elisha because he sees that Elisha is a representative of God and he believes that the trouble is from God and in killing the representative of God he will stop all the trouble but he can't because God's in control and then when he gets a word from God this person that is in control with him his soldier on his right hand the captain of his army doesn't believe it and that's very sad because God says things that if we don't accept with faith, we will never actually get to participate in. God tells them through Elisha, tomorrow at this time, what you have been price gouging, the wheat, there will be plenty of it. This famine, it will be gone. And what does the uh, captain of the army say? That's impossible. But God doesn't say things that he cannot provide. God doesn't give us promises that will not be fulfilled. And no matter how bad it looks, God's word will still ring true. People are so focused in the now that they can't see the good that God's going to do because they're overwhelmed in a lot of cases by the bad or by their own desires to have control where God is limiting it. So we must learn to trust God's word 
especially in the day like today to where it looks bad and for a lot of people it is bad but God has a better promise for us and that promise is salvation that the right now could appear to be an impossible thing if we don't look at it with faith because there's a disease going around that nobody has a cure for. Because there's a, a, a virus that is so contagious that we're scared to interact with everybody else over. People are closing churches. People are shutting down businesses. People are sheltering in place, a term that we didn't even have in our lexicon a month ago. But now, it's part of the everyday language. And we're so focused on how can I have control right now so that I can make it that we're doing weird things as a people. We stop going to worship. We buy up all the toilet paper at a grocery store. We get all the supplies that's available. And we're not considering the fact that God is still in control and that at any moment God wants, he can make it better, but that's not our hope because our real hope is in the fact that we're going to die and go to heaven eternally. And that's, that's what we're really expecting. So, if it gets worse, will be okay because we have a better tomorrow than how bad it is today but what allows a person to get to the point that they can see what's going on in the present hear what God says about the future and trust it I would say also in looking at the expanse of this passage we see what Elisha has experienced and we look at the past and how God has been there for us as God has provided for us as God has brought us through to this present moment to know that this present moment is not too big for God to respond. So what are some of the things that God has done through Elisha? Well, just some of the stories, if you just go through it in 2 Kings, starting off after Elisha has taken over this prophetic ministry from Elijah, what do we see? We see that God's working through him. So he prophesizes that God is going to bring this Israelite army victorious in God's word when it's true. We see that in a few instances to where there was perceived bad and God acted for good. This group of prophets, they were together at one time and, and somebody had made a stew and they went and got some wild gourds and they put these wild gourds in the pot of stew and they come to Elijah and they say 
Oh, man of God says, dust in the pot. And Elijah, he puts flour in it. And then the soup is good. We see that they move to this place to live and that the water is bitter. It can't be drank. And he puts a little bit of salt in it. And the water is good. The Bible says the water was good to this very day. We see that there was this prophet's widow who died and her husband was a faithful man, but he had debt and she couldn't pay that debt. So Elijah says, go and borrow vessels of pots from all of your neighbors and pour the little bit of oil that you have in your house in all of those vessels and then sell it. And she does it and she's provided for we see that there's a Shunammite woman who does Elisha good because she recognizes he's a man of God and she builds a house for him. And Elisha says, what can I do good for her? And so God gives her a son. This son dies and through Elisha, God brings his son back to life. And Elisha sees all of this good that God has done in these situations that people would have said this is past God acting this is bad and if they would have got so caught up in the right now that they couldn't see the good that God was going to do but they knew what God had brought to the Shunammite woman whose son had died she knew to go get the man of God who prophesied that she was going to have a son. The poor widow whose husband had died and she was in debt, she knew to go talk to the man of God to ask him for an answer. This priest, this school of prophets, when they were in dire straits, they knew to go to the man of God for the resolution. What am I saying? That when we go to God, for our resolutions to whatever problems we're in, we know that tomorrow will be better because what he's done for us in the past. And in this situation that we see with the famine, one would think that these leaders who are causing this situation to be persistent would understand the blessings that God had given them and they wouldn't even be in that situation, but they are because they're trying to control something that God is actually controlling. Because God has prophesied, even before they got to that point, that he was going to change the leadership. God had prophesied, even before Joram was a king, that there would be a king named Jehu who would wipe out all of Ahab's house, which Joram was a part of. God had prophesied that there would be a man named Haziel who would come and be king over Haram, which Ben-Hadad was actually residing over. And God had prophesied that Elisha would take over as the prophet from Elijah, which was actually happening in that day. You see, God's word was being worked out, and those who were faithful to it were seeing its benefit. But those who were blind to it found themselves like 
the captain of Joram's army who didn't believe that God could in a day change their situation. They saw God act, but they didn't reap the benefit of it. And one can't help but to think that Jesus gave us a promise that when he comes back, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And so while some people might not believe the very promises of God, everybody is going to see it, but they all won't receive the benefit because they won't see it with faith. They'll see it in doubt. And they'll see Jesus come back, but they won't receive an eternal home. So for us who have put our faith in Christ, we must learn to look at things like Elisha. Understanding that no matter how bad it is, no matter what we have to suffer, no matter what the opposition says or tries to do to us, because we speak, we represent God, we'll be okay. We must find ourselves like the Shunammite woman when we have lost something that's very near and dear to us, we go and we look for our answer from God. The same as the school of the prophets, the same as the poor widow who was all taken care of through Elisha by God because they had demonstrated faith and they trusted in this God who was really in control and they didn't allow the perceived problem that could not be fixed to stop them from putting trust in God. You see, many people right now have taken their faith from God and putting it in the hands of science in the hands of politicians and in the hands of things that are not God because what they want to do is save themselves. They want to save their lives. They want to save their economies. They want to save their loved ones or whatever it is. So they listen. And I say some of the advice might be sound but they don't consult God. They make these decisions that are devoid of the counsel of God, devoid of going to scripture and seeing what it is that God wants from them because they're trying to be in control. And what they have inadvertently done is they stop looking to where God has brought them through in the past, where God has worked for his people in the past, and they're forgetting where God is really trying to take us and focusing solely on this life. And we don't want to do that in any situation because we know that God is working for us as his people. We know that God is going to give us a better tomorrow, no matter how bad it gets. Someone would say that if God allowed 
his country, his nation to get to the point to where women eat their own children, that he can't act to change it, but he does. Some people nowadays think that if we catch a virus to where there's not a cure for in the hands of man, that God can't cure them, but he can. And what they're overlooking is that even if we die, we still have a heavenly home. The same Elijah that God did all these miraculous acts through, that God gave all these prophecies that he fulfilled through, he died of a sickness. Was that an indication that God was upset with him? No. That was just the way and manner in which God allowed, chose, saw fit for him to leave this earth because his task as a servant of God was done. So we must remain faithful to it all. But another thing that helps us remain faithful is we must learn to be content with what God has provided us. We don't want to find ourselves in the situation of a Ben-Hadad fighting God's people so that we can have more resources. Dare I say, we don't want to find ourselves in the position of the two women who got to the point to where they said, I'm going to eat my child so that I can live. We must learn, as Paul said, I've learned to be hungry in situations and I've learned to be a mass in situations, but I do all of this knowing that God can bring me through. I learn to be content and trust in God because no matter how good it gets, no matter how bad it gets, it's God who's in control and it's God who will see me through. So we don't have to panic like the rest of the world who doesn't demonstrate faith. We don't have to charge ill to God when bad is going on because we recognize that no matter how righteous man thinks that he is, just like Joram, we don't always go all the way with God. There are a lot of stones that we left unturned in our faith that if God exposed them to us, we would see the guilty distance we stand. And so we don't want to charge wrong to God when we haven't did all that we can to make sure that we are right. So we remain faithful. We remain content. And no matter how tough it gets, we allow God to have control we trust in his word, and we live in faith. And we don't let the faithless shake us or cause us to cast doubt on the better tomorrow that God is going to provide for those who follow him. I know this is a difficult time for the world right now. And if one is to listen to the news, it could cause you to think that this moment is beyond God's control. 
and these times are so bad because we haven't seen anything like this before that God can't act. But he can, he will, and he is. So let's act in faith with him because we're going to make it through. But no matter how we make it through this, what we really want to do is make it through to the other side, which is our eternal home. And that's going to cause us to have to see the end of this life. Whether that be if Jesus comes back or if that Jesus calls us home until he returns. So don't ever forget what God has brought you through. Because he's going to bring you to heaven. Because he promised you. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But not every soul will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's our hope. That's our promise. And that's why we remain faithful. And we trust. No matter what the rest of the world does. I'm not sure where that sermon leaves you. My prayer is that you will contemplate it and incorporate it into your Christian life. If you're not a Christian, I ask, what's stopping you? God sent his son, Jesus, to freely extend the gift of salvation to all who will follow him. To get that salvation, one must follow the example set out in scripture. The book of Acts, which details the church's beginnings and expansion, shows us biblical examples of those who were saved. A good place to look is in Acts 2. You get Peter preaching the first gospel sermon in the response of those who heard and believed his message. They repented and were baptized, which added them to the church Christ established. The Bible only teaches of one church. If you want to be added to it, go to your local Church of Christ and tell them your desire to be washed of your sins and to live a godly life. Study your Bible, put its teachings to practice, and you will make heaven your home.